Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Stormy Simon. Welcome, Stormy. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for having me. Stormy Simon is an e-commerce pioneer, corporate leader, cannabis activist, and the host of the podcast, Lunch with Stormy. Stormy spent 15 years of her career at the e-commerce retailer, Overstock.com beginning her tenure as a temp and eventually rising to president of the nearly $2 billion a year company in 2013. In 2016, Stormy stepped down from the presidency at Overstock and followed her passion into the burgeoning world of cannabis. A longtime canavangelist and recreational usage proponent, she began working at a cultivation center in Denver to fully immerse herself in the industry. Throughout that journey, she became a passionate medical advocate. And in 2017, Join the board of High Times, an unconventional leader who went straight into the workforce, bypassing college and business school. She's managed to be featured throughout the media landscape in outlets like Inc., Forbes, San Francisco Chronicle, MSN, Cheddar, Yahoo, Entrepreneur, Pop Sugar, CNBC, and Fox Business. Wow. Stormy, you have one of the most impressive resumes in the cannabis industry. I am so excited to talk to you today. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm excited too. You have a fascinating journey to working in the cannabis industry. Would you share with us your story from president of Overstock.com to being hired as the CEO of High Times to running for Congress in Utah this year? Yeah, it's a pretty funny path. Um, Yeah, in 2016, I left Overstock as president and jumped into cannabis, you know, not having any idea what that really meant. Um, just knowing that it hadn't been done before. And we had a couple states that were legalized for adult usage, which I thought was fascinating. You know, given when we look back on the history of alcohol prohibition, you know, how much has been written and how far it came and how that affected our government and people's rights and all sorts of things. And that's what drew me in. The piece of the business, you know, when folks talk about the green rush, that really wasn't in my head at the time. I had been a cannabis user, supporter, whatever word people want to put around it, you know, but I guess in the stigma size world, it would have been like stoner or something. But, you know, regardless, I was attracted to the plant and really the idea of this business, um, something that's never been done before. This state's literally getting ahead of the federal government and moved to Denver, you know, moved around to Denver and California, a few different things. They're really wide eyed and in awe at all of the, the things that were happening around it, you know, entrepreneurs, mom and pops, the medicinal side, um, the civil rights side, even hemp, you know, all of the products that hemp can bring in this, Um, suppression of the plant, I went down this, you know, rabbit hole of why are we where we're at? Why are we fighting so hard for something so, you know, pure? 
really led me down reading about our history with the plant. You know, it's 10,000 year documented history that that we have access to, you know, reading all of the things, Israel, all of it. Like I read so much. Um, and in the meantime, within the industry, the big money was coming in, things were changing. There was this authenticity that was there that was, you know, going commercial. It was quite confusing. And also who do you trust, you know, are things certified or people doing it, you know, to a standard that's acceptable. Um, and, you know, joining the board of high times was something that I really wanted to do uh, when they got their new leadership back in 2017. And I think that relationship is what led me to there in 2020. Um, but what led me to run for office was really the, the idea that, you know, if not people like this, if not people who push the envelope that raise their hand, even when it's may not be, be the most popular thing to do, or despite popular opinion, whatever those reasons, you know, folks that step forward, like I've seen within the cannabis industry and a lot more in 2016, you know, why not people like that? I've seen them jump through loopholes of bureaucratic government, um, just within the states to be able to be ready for a federal legalization. And that's what made me do it is, you know, I'm, I'm in Utah. It's a red state. Cannabis is a very, there's a conservative program, but there's no program out here. They're very concerned about how it rolls out despite the success in other states. And I just thought if a cannabis advocate can run in the state of Utah with their head held high, then why couldn't we run all over the country? And state government is really a place to get your hands um, involved in your zip code. And I guess that's the four-year journey to that. And now at the end of this road today, how do you feel about a, a career in politics after the corporate world and the cannabis world? Yeah, you know, I don't think that I'm a politician, which is probably the reasons if you don't think you're a politician, you should probably run for office. I mean, one would hope that those are the people we can get in. Um, I'm not sure that that's, that's a career for me, or I even view it as a career. You know, if we get back to where it's civil service, you know, the way the whole system works within campaigning and running for office, even within my small zip code, here in Utah is truly fascinating. I'd encourage anyone to do it. You don't have to win to get the experience. And, but I, I'm not sure it's something that I would pursue, but I would definitely um, assist people in pursuing it. That's for sure. You know, you mentioned something that is, I think very important to remember about our political system is that it is a civil service role and it is, a civic duty to run for office and represent your district. And it's become so convoluted with all of the money that gets dumped in that it, it's, you know, we look at our politicians now as being politicians who are bought and sold commodities to represent corporate, corporate interests. But it is, it did stem from being a civic duty. Yeah. And, you know, it is all about money. The campaigning piece has a lot to do with money and it turns out you really do need it. But when I first jumped in, decided to do this and was, you know, feeling around for how you even do it, because I had zero idea, really. Um, you know, I was told you need to raise between 
20, no, 30 and $50,000. And I said, what? That just seems insane to me. There are 22,000 people maybe in this district that votes or 22,000 households, something like that. And um, I came up with a budget for about 10 grand and thought, that's all I'm raising. Like, that's all that it should, you know, that it should take or whatever. I was up against a, you know, a pretty red wall, but that's okay. But I just thought there's no reason I'm going to go get $50,000 and spend it on this campaign. But when you think of that, 22,000 households, $50,000 was the top they said to raise. And then you think about how much goes into a presidential election or a Senate seat. These numbers are insane. You know, they're insane. And they're, when you back it up, you know, there are people who are um, trying to get their personal agenda through our system that put those kinds of dollars into this, you know. And I think at a state level, it's people who think alike, um, people who want to affect their zip code a little bit more when they donate versus, you know, on this national level. But it was, it really was a fascinating, fascinating experience. Is it something that, you think women in our industry need to step up and participate in more? Absolutely. If they want to, I mean, there's a lot by the end of it, you know, there was a slim chance of winning in Utah, the very red state, right? We're just very, very, very red. And I ran as a Democrat, but I think, you know, once you get to the point of where you're like, am I going to be walking into that legislature every day and doing things with, you know, in this kind of bureaucratic environment and these kinds of formats, you know, it's got to be something you want to do, but in order to push change through a system, it's got to start somewhere. And people in the cannabis industry are movers and shakers, you know, they're, they're pushing things forward. They're making it happen. And, you know, it'd be amazing if we had that grassroots type feel every day in government, every single day. A million Katie Porters. Yeah, maybe two two million. <laughs> As someone who skipped college and business school myself, I am really curious where you cultivated your leadership skills. And when you found yourself in a leadership role, was that something that you had aspired to? Was it a comfortable transition or was it something you were reluctant to accept? Um. The transition was absolutely comfortable. Did I aspire to it? You know, I'm not sure I would, I ever dreamed, you know, that I could be or have that title or would do that in business. I'm not sure about that, but you know, I always envisioned myself, like wanted to be in the business suit and, you know, as a little girl wanted to carry a briefcase and was more drawn to that type of, you know, playtime, but moving into it, there was, you know, before Overstock, most jobs that I had, I wound up in a leadership position. So, you know, I don't know if that's just the way I work or, you know, God given, whatever it is. But within Overstock, you know, I joined at such a ground level that the ideas I had and then were able to implement and, you know, take it step by step. Um, the natural course of steps, actually, and then have done it really well, 
you know, it just organically played out. There was never a moment in my head where I thought, you know what, I'm going to be president of this company. It just didn't enter, you know, the work entered and the work and performance is what got me there. It wasn't, you know, on my vision board. And how did you come into managing people? Because that's something that, you know, women either are really, really comfortable with it and they embrace it, or it can be a very terrifying prospect to now have all of these people underneath you that depend on you, that you have to lead in the same direction with all different agendas and ideas and backgrounds. Where did you cultivate your ability to do that? Because you obviously wouldn't have been put in place as president of a company like Overstock unless you were really good at doing that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because some of the mentors, like I would say I did terrible, a terrible job at times. Like I have things that I cringe, like where I think, oh my God, as a leader, you know, I belittled that person or, you know what I mean? I really did. And I did those things and you stumble through them and you, you look back, but at the moments of intensity, you know, especially a $2 billion company, it's like, yeah, there's moments that you're so busy or you just don't have time for it or you're having a bad day. But I think the leadership piece, I love people. I love talking to people. I'm genuinely interested in their stories and I, I enjoy working together. I'm not a soloist, you know. Um, I like teams. I like building them and working together and finding people's talents, their innate talent, like what they're good at and what they're not good at. And then keep them in that, you know, in that realm. Why ever, you know, put somebody in a public speaking position if it makes them totally terrified? You know, there's zero reason for that. So just finding where people's innate, you know, personalities fit and allowing them to be that personality uh, is, you know, where people can be comfortable. Um, and by no means have I been a perfect leader. I've had my greatest days and then I've had my darkest as a leader. But, um, you know, all you can do is learn and move on. And I think as women, we want to be liked, you know, and mm. I would say there were moments I had to turn off emotion to get through what I had to get through, like turn off the feeling. Um, and you can't be liked, you know, you're, if you're managing 2000 people, you, you know, you can't have an approval rating of a hundred percent. It's just not going to happen. You're going to, you have to draw your line. You have to pick your side. You have to go against the grain. You have to gain efficiencies. You have to lay people off. You have to do all of these things. And there's never a moment where every single person is like, I'm happy, you know, but can they trust you? Can they, you know, will you use good judgment? Things like that are, are really important, I think, when leading people. The conflict of the people pleaser in a lot of women with the leader, you just nailed it. It's something that I also, as a leader, have had to deal with. And it comes across in really little ways that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that I am a people pleaser or that I really worry that people like me, but I'm realizing as I am put in a position to lead more people within my company, 
I, there are little things, little concessions that I make for people because I don't want to upset them. I don't want to create conflict. I want everything to be okay. And it comes right in conflict with, well, you're now leading. And so you can't do that. And it's, it's, it's been a really interesting transition for me to make at a much smaller scale than you were doing. But I think it's a really valid and important thing to recognize in a lot of women leaders is these kind of these smaller things that keep, that hold us back in our roles because we do we are relationship managers and we do want everyone to be happy and we do want everyone to be okay and get along and all of these things and it just comes in direct conflict with the leadership role which can also at times be the bit role. And no one wants that to be assigned to that role. So how did you balance that for yourself and, and em, kind of embrace that part of you that had to be hard and, and not nice? You know, I had, I really did have to turn it off at times. Mm. You know, you do have to make hard decisions and you can't, sometimes the basis of those decisions can't be humans. They just can't be when you're running a business, even though it's all the humans that make it tick. It's all the humans that make it happen. It's humans that you love, appreciate. They still can't be the basis for some of those decisions. You know, you have to remove that from the equation and, you know, you make decisions off spreadsheets and numbers and, you know, it's, it's not an easy role to play, but I think the more you do it, the more desensitized you might become to it but I remember the day when I just said I'm not firing anyone else like I am personally not doing it I'm just not it was too much it just got to be like you know it's so hard to lay people off or so hard to let someone go even if they're a bad employee it's terrible you know I can see the good side of every single person um, or at least a good quality and you get better at it or more used to it. But I wouldn't say, you know, when you're sitting there home alone and thinking about your day and the effects, the butterfly effects your actions may have had on people, many people, you know, it doesn't always feel good, even if it's the right decision. So true. The challenges of leadership. Mm-hmm. Yep. Being a woman in the cannabis industry can be a real uphill fight for many of us. How would you say that being a woman in this industry has been an asset and how has it been a hindrance? And then what have you found being in the cannabis industry is different than traditional corporate world in terms of dealing with this gender issue for yourself? I would say it's across the industries. You know, even in retail, there are a lot of women in retail, but you know, depending on the roles that they're in, are they in leadership roles? Or are they always the merchandiser? You know, mm-hmm. are they always the HR role? Are they the CFO? Are they, you know, so I think that that is every industry struggles with, you know, being more uh, equal in women in the workforce. But in cannabis, you know, it was so interesting uh, to watch the money come in. And it, it is a lot of male money. And I'm not sure that my gender, you know, matters other than, you know, when I have an opinion or, you know what I mean? I think there's times that the point of view is different because of my gender. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the cannabis industry, I think as women, uh, you know, especially at my age, in your 50s, 
you've experienced so much of, you know, what we always, this umbrella of the Me Too movement, you know, but if you say Me Too is strictly, you know, sexual harassment or whatever, you know, sexual innuendos, whatever we've had to deal with as women, because it was always there, but let's put that in the Me Too umbrella. And then this other umbrella of like, you know, the boys club and the boys club is real. Like, I don't know that it's any fault of their own or just the way the country has grown up, but the boys club is real. And is that in the cannabis industry? Yes. Oh my goodness. You know, I wouldn't say every single boy is in a club, but you know, it's there as much as it is anywhere else. And maybe that's where the money is, or maybe that's where, you know, you got to go, or it's just the network is so in place that they bring each other along. But I think it's more of a network and structural thing versus like, because I'm female, mm. you know, I just think it's the way the word world has evolved, you know? Mm-hmm. We five years ago we weren't even talking about this stuff, you know. Right. So I think you know the Me Too movement has definitely forced the world to start looking at it, which is great. But you know, I guess if the question was, is there the same struggles in cannabis as in other industries? I would say absolutely. The community of women in the cannabis industry is large and growing every day. We are wrapping in women from the psychedelic studies now internationally. This community of women is growing and you have been a big part of it for several years now. Um, You know, you you keynote at events, you jump on board to help women's causes. I mean, you, you are ever present in the community of women in the industry in women empowered in cannabis and in other things that are women focused. So I kind of want to ask you about a sensitive subject because as a leader in the industry, I want to hear what your perspective is on how we need to deal with this. So you were a keynote at the house of Jane, uh, women in plant medicine summit in September. Yeah. During your keynote, you mentioned an incident that happened on social media. There was a woman who'd posted something pretty negative about the conference and you chimed in to set the record straight and found that it got to be a really sticky situation. And yeah. the thing is that this is not unusual. And I see it happening frequently in the community. I have women coming to me constantly. And it is it's something that I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around because we have these women like yourself, like myself, who put others before them and really work hard to ensure that there's a safe, community for women to become a part of the industry and find their niche and and be accepted and have the help that women really want from each other. And then we have women who kind of throw bombs and work against what others are trying to do. And it's almost like the snake eating its tail. And yet at the same time, we have evolved from an industry where without unity, and, and a tight message, we never would have experienced where we are today, which is legalization in so many states and potentially throughout the U.S. And I see that what may have happened is once we got there, once we crossed that finish line, internally it just started to fray. And as a, a community of women, if we came together, my God, the power of our voice, but we don't. Instead, this is what happens. 
why do you think this is so intense in cannabis? And what can we do to create more unity among us as women? You know, I think with cannabis, it's this interesting thing because it's so historic. So many people um, literally risked their freedom to distribute the plant or grow the plant or create the medicine. And so when I entered the industry, I caught that pretty quick, like the OGs, the real people that should be, you know, developing the brands and things like that. So I caught on to that pretty quick is that like I was viewed as this, you know, business person, you know, I, I guess. I don't, I don't really know how I was viewed, Who's, who knows, but I wasn't definitely not one of the OGs, the originals. And um, that was okay, I understood why. Like I learned how to grow the plant. I learned a bunch of things, you know, the jobs I took weren't big and fancy. They were like grassroots or, or ground floor getting my hands dirty. Um, in regards to the plant medicine event that you hosted there, you know, the term plant medicine was what was up for debate. You know, people were actually offended that the term plant medicine was used. And all I could think of was perhaps, you know, due to uh, indigenous tribes and, you know, the folks that were standing on this land before us and using medicine or plants as medicine before it was forbidden, you know, um, they do have really good traditions and really amazing information that is beyond what I personally no, you know, I've done my, and I had also mentioned that I did some shamanic journeys and my goodness, it just upset people. It just upset everyone. It just upset them. Um, now, what I came away with in that particular instance is, you know, my term or usage of plant medicine is my own and how anybody wants to perceive it is up to them, but they can't take it away from me. They can't take away the fact that I've, you know, spent time with shamans. You can't take that away. It's already happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do we bring it to the table in cannabis? You know, um, it's passion. I think that there's passion for it. And as people become successful or they get recognition or notoriety because of the movement that we're experiencing um, regarding, you know, cannabis being the gateway to all these other things we're now moving towards, um, that people want to have the ownership if they've dedicated their lives to it. And I think that's fair. You know, what I don't like is, you know, the other thing you brought up, why is women, why are women attacking each other? And, you know, it comes back almost to that leadership thing where you're never going to get a hundred percent approval. And yeah. we are so sensitive, you know, as an, as a society right now with this social media stuff, it's so easy to start an argument or poke a hole in it or get literal, right? Because your words are always out there. So it's like, if you literally define them, you know, opposed to your perception, maybe you get a little upset, but how can women, um, you know, how do we get past it? How do we come together? You know, I think we do a pretty good job. Um, you know, historically we were raised like oh look what she's wearing or you know what I mean I, mm -hmm. I I think we were raised more as women to be against each other to view each other as a competition in some sense but that's falling away too as society grows up so um I don't know you know I just think that that support of you know maybe if you don't like something keep scrolling but there's also the support of standing up for yourself. And if you are, you know, if someone does come at you, um, 
you just get to be your opinion too. As much as they get to be their opinion or not like what you're doing, you get to like it and force your opinion about what you're doing. And that's it, you know, approval rating is never 100%. So, you know, I can't say that we can all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. I think we do a pretty good job, you know, it's a pretty good job, not bad. I do agree. I agree. We, I think that the most unique thing about the cannabis industry is the unity around, well, let's say in, in other worlds I've worked in, there's always been a desire for women to actually come together and support each other, but there's still that apprehension. There's still that awareness. There's only one, maybe two seats at the table here. And in cannabis, I like to say that we're building that table together because it isn't really so much about what can you do for me in this moment, but do you have information that I need to know? So if you are a nurse or a scientist and I'm in marketing, we have a lot to share with each other. And it really doesn't matter where you land on the supply chain, how long you've been around, or if you just came in from another industry. There's so much information to share with each other that it 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 has an on the one hand, it's created this absolutely incredible warmth among the women in the industry and support. But it, it, it's also kind of as wonderful and warm is also as dark and cold as it can get when women turn on each other. So it it still does create this kind of tear in the fabric of our community that, you know, I see a lot. And I, I really am focused on 2021 and figuring out ways that we can, you know, allow these differences between us, but also remain together in a way that our voice has more power because, Together, we do have more power. And I really want to see the women in the industry use it. You know, we should be able to say, you know, that brand is harassing women or, you know, we need to support this woman and and we can make it happen because we've come together and we know how to use our voice and we can start affecting policy change at the level of, of government one day if we have enough power. So thank you for weighing in on that. So what are you looking forward to in 2021? Oh my gosh, 2021, I am so, I'm, I have this huge house in Utah and I'm getting ready to sell it. It's just too big, too much to take care of. It's a full-time job. And that's what I really need to do. I'm developing some land in, uh, on the Nevada, Arizona border that I'm really looking forward to. Um, I have a couple things that I haven't decided on. And I'm continuing to do uh, the podcast Lunch with Stormy, which I've absolutely loved doing and have uh, some guests that have just come in that we'll be recording in January and have a couple like tomorrow I'm interviewing Judge Joe Brown, which I think is going to be a really interesting um, yeah, conversation. He's a really cool guy. Um, and I'm just looking forward to, you know, for me, what COVID has done was it stopped my crazy train, you know, for the past while it overstocked for the past 10 years, you know, I had been traveling at least every week. And, you know, once I jumped into cannabis, I lived in Utah part time and just kept moving and moving and busy, busy. There's so much to look at and so many shiny objects. Um, and so COVID stopped my train and I realized that that was the best thing that could have happened because as a young parent, I've been going a million miles an hour for a really long time. So I look forward to figuring out how to 
keep integrating this additional piece that I found in my life. Um, and, you know, start really playing towards my passion plays and things that I'm interested in versus just being busy to be busy, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I, I feel you on that. That is having every activity and travel taken away is amazing how much it really makes you sit with yourself. Things you learn. Yeah. When people say we'll get back to normal, I think my normal's different. Like I'm really quite different from it. And I think it's better. I think it's a better Stormy. Well, I have really enjoyed speaking with you today, Stormy in your the 2020 version of Stormy. If people want to learn more about you or get in touch, where should they find you? I'm on social media channels as Stormy Simon everywhere that I am. Um, and then I have stormysimon.com. And that's where I where I post my podcast and sign up for the newsletter or whatever you want to do there. But you can always find me under Stormy Simon. And we'll be able to find your podcast there as well? Yes. And on any platform. Thank you so much, Stormy, for your time today and for sharing your journey with us. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our website, womenempoweredincannabis.com, and find your group, Supply Chain, CBD and Hemp, and the recently launched Women of Color. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.